Hello, this is Daryl Castle with today's Castle Report. Today is Friday, the fourth day of December in the year 2020. And on this report, I will be talking about the country has changed, fundamentally changed over the last 60 years, to the point where it seems obsessed by race and by racial politics. Before I start, however, I will tell you that the Castle family had a wonderful Thanksgiving, considering we were separated by thousands of miles uh, because of the virus. Joan and I had a Zoom dinner with the family daughter from her home in Los Angeles first. I want to apologize and retract something I said the week before Thanksgiving. I said that the social credit system in the United States is in many ways worse than the one in communist China, and that is just not true. I was bothered by that statement. I spent much of Thanksgiving weekend researching social credit in China, particularly as applied to the Uyghur people in the extreme western province, the Uyghurs. Lands border India to the south and Pakistan to the west, with the other stands surrounding them when the Soviet Union broke apart. Independence was granted to the various stands that were under the Soviet state. Since they gained independence from the Soviet Union, the Uyghurs started demanding an independent state of East Turkestan from Communist China. The difference, of course, is that China is not destitute, as was the Soviet Union, and China is perfectly capable of retaining its distant territories. I don't want to belabor Uyghur history, but these people are held in virtual bondage by communist China. Social credit is a communist method of control. The Uyghurs are mostly Muslims of Turkish origin. They speak the language of the Turks and the Kazakhs, as well as Mandarin Chinese. They are lower than second class to the Han rulers of communist China. The Hans of mainland China are all right socially if they behave themselves, but not the Uyghurs. The social credit system labels people in China as either trustworthy, meaning you can travel, have a phone, and so forth, or untrustworthy, you can't have those things. No Uyghur can obtain a rating higher than untrustworthy if you see a non-Uyghur. On the street in Uyghur territory, you can bet he's a state official sent to watch them. People are routinely taken from their homes and sent to re-education camps, often leaving orphans behind. To escape is equivalent to escaping from prison. But freedom burns in the human heart. Despite all this, there are strong separatist movements among these people. Thus, the concept is one of Three great evils, according to communist Chinese officials. Those are separatism, terrorism, and religious fanaticism. Most of the Uyghurs are Muslim, you see, which is somewhat tolerated, but not Christianity. Now I've relieved my conscience regarding what I said about these people and about the social credit system here in the United States and China. Let me return to the United States for the rest of this report first, the fundamental change that President Obama promised to bring us began long before he took office. There have been two great philosophical political movements in the United States since the Declaration of Independence in 1776. For the first 187 or so years, the emphasis was always patriotism, all the time patriotism, everything taught 
and school was designed to bring out the emotions associated with patriotism, meaning love of country and love of the country's way of life. When the country was threatened or perceived to be threatened, men lined up around the block to fill the ranks. America was perceived as so good, it was willing to send its sons, the pride of the nation, as FDR put it, to die for people they did not know and people they had never met. From elementary school to about midpoint of college, I remember personally the emphasis on patriotism was basically unchallenged. That started to change early in my college career. It had changed substantially by graduation. To illustrate my point, when I first started the college, two years of ROTC training was mandatory for male students at my college. Can you imagine such a thing today? Patriotism was the ethos of the country. Its hold on the American people was almost universal. The first noticeable changes started to occur during the administration of John F. Kennedy, but primarily they occurred after or because of his death. I encourage you to read a copy of President Kennedy's inaugural speech sometime. Read that in order that you might discern the difference in attitude between then and now. Here are just a few of his words. Quote, the world is very different now, and yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe, the belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God, end quote. Kennedy, a World War II veteran, understood the state as force and violence, not benevolence. He did see problems both existing and developing, and he set about to solve them. A massive tax cut he pushed through Congress bolstered the economy, increased revenue, and left more of the income in the hands of the American people. Columnist Star Parker has pointed out that when he was inaugurated, when Kennedy was inaugurated, children could still pray in school. Abortion was illegal. 75% of adults age 18 and above were married. A little over 5% of babies were born to unwed mothers today. It's all different, obviously. And the prevailing ethos is not patriotism at all, but racial equality and racial diversity. We hear quite often the term institutional or systemic racism, but that was made illegal by the 1964 Civil Rights Act that obviously passed just after Kennedy's death. President Johnson persuaded Congress that the act was what Kennedy wanted and what he died for. Since systemic racism is illegal, and if committed by an individual or by a state enterprise, would be a hate crime. Why not follow the system that exists in civil law? Why not use one of the million or so lawyers that are sitting by waiting to do that work and file a lawsuit for civil damages? Instead, people want to intimidate the various levels of government, various individuals, to make officials tie an ever heavier weight around society to correct something of which they present no evidence. It has all together caused an unprecedented level of division in American society. Go back to 1860, you'll find more division, obviously, with the Civil War, but it's far worse today than it was during the divided days of Vietnam. There seems to be a level of hatred between the various divisions that I have not seen before in my lifetime. It does remind one. Of Civil War rhetoric, such as brother against brother, father against son, families 
can no longer speak to each other. Marriages break up over differing views of politics. For those and many other reasons, I contend we're currently at war though with those who seek to destroy, not just change, our culture and our civilization. Unfortunately, the destroyers are years ahead of us in tactics, in strategy, and in organization. Their long march through the institutions began many, many years ago and is now complete. The education of our children, nothing but propaganda from beginning to end. Even the church is corrupt, staffed by the results of many generations of their efforts. If you want to destroy Christian civilization, you must first destroy Christianity in the minds of the people. If you look at the polls regarding abortion, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, polygamy, pedophilia, you can help you cannot help but conclude that it has happened. It is destroyed. The enemy completely controls all forms of media in which people in this modern world communicate, social media, mainstream media, including broadcast and what is left to print, all nothing but propaganda for the enemy. Donald Trump was at least perceived as a threat to all that. As a result, he had to go. I suppose that unlike most contenders, he was beholden to no one. That made him dangerous, at least the four years of groundless charges against him. Reveal the enemy's ugly face for what it really is. It is violence, rioting, looting, chaos, disorder. It is radical groups terrorizing the cities. Groups which are protected by demoralized and defunded police forces, soaring rates of murder, and other violent crimes were the result of all this. Despite all that I have described, the enemy and all its resources, its minions of evil, were unable to prevail over honorable, decent Americans in a fair election, not to be deterred by such inconvenient plans. Plans were laid, tactics begun to make the election decidedly unfair. Dominion voting machines installed across the country and even in many other countries allow switching of votes and alteration of vote percentages. The fraud was massive and obvious. So we wait and we see what the courts do with the evidence. Elections are very important to a free country. In fact, it's difficult to imagine how a democratic country, meaning one of self-government, could exist without free elections. Elections pr provide legitimacy to the winner and its minions. They provide a cloak of respectability under which politicians are free to commit their murder and their mayhem. The people think they're voting for their ideas, but simply deciding who gets the license to steal and kill. Politicians are elected by promising to clean it all up, but they soon are wallowing with the pigs in the manure. Fraud and illegitimate elections are now out in the open, and damage to the system of self-government will be irreparable, if not corrected. The enemy, however, is pseudo-realist and has abandoned the rule of law and its protection of the individual for an ideological political imperative which they hold to be more precious than law. Honor, truth, courage, integrity, and heroism are all completely out of fashion now since only winning counts. That's enough about our recent election, folks. About our stolen election, I should say. I want to conclude this report by reminding you that sometimes we hear the phrase, Democrats are the evil party, Republicans are the stupid party. 
To that description, we must now add that Republicans are also the gutless coward party, the cowards of American politics, the cowardly lions in the Republican Party believing that Biden will now be inaugurated. Line up. To eat the scraps from his table is disgusting. It's obvious. I hope it is obvious to voters, but they seem to continually vote for those who are opposed to their best interests. Finally, folks, they always emphasize diversity, these progressives. Diversity all the time, everywhere. Should Joe Biden survive and be inaugurated, his administration will be filled with first that he can brag about the first female vice president, the first woman of color vice president, the first female secretary of defense, the first female director of Homeland Security. However, the real objective is not diversity at all, but a bland sameness of thought and action. That is why Democrats murdered free speech and will not allow a diverse thought to exist. Not one shred of intellectual diversity will be found among them. You can rest assured of that. At least that's the way I see it, folks. Until next time, this is Daryl Castle. Thanks for listening.